Okay, we've been filling in the blanks on Tuesday night and trying to follow along in the schedule of the week before Christ died. And we've been uh, sticking some things in because we can't fit them all in. There's so many to think about. When I get to this time of year, it's a shock to me. <laughs> and the reason it's a shock is because that's exactly what happened. You think about the crucifixion and it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper and more and more and more. And it's a very powerful event. And then all of a sudden, uh, the resurrection just comes. Wow, where'd that come from? <laughs> and so I'm sure that's exactly how it felt when it happened. And when the resurrection happened, they were all saying, well, Jesus is dead and it's over. Now what? What do we do now? And then all of a sudden, he's alive. And so talk about shifting gears. You know, that's a real shifting of gears. For them it was, and it is for us, when we go to think about what happened on Good Friday. And then a couple days later, everything turns around. So it's always a... Uh, shock kind of to my system because I get immersed in this and then we got to tell a whole other story which I'm happy to tell. So we come, we've talked a lot about the crucifixion. On Sunday we talked about the emotional impact on Christ as he's abandoned by everybody and uh, <clears throat> what it felt like on the cross to go through that. We talked in this class a week before about uh, taking the sin of the world on himself and the horrors that that included. And so we thought about some of the dark things uh, about that event. Can't say we plumbed the depth, but we scraped a little off the top. <laughs> and uh, <coughs> one of the things about being a Bible student. If you're a Bible student, don't be afraid to ask a question. Ask questions, because I think there's nothing better than asking questions. And God is okay with that. We don't know, so we ask him. Tell, tell us what it is, and, and we don't know. And he's okay with questions. Whenever you see people asking questions, if they are genuinely asking a question, he always answers it. Even uh, Pilate, he was answered Pilate's questions. Uh, if they're just trying to, you know, trip him up or something, then he'll answer them and he'll turn the tables on him. Uh, so you can't fool him, but he's happy to answer questions. And sometimes the questions come into our minds about what happened. And one of the questions that comes into my mind and I've thought about it a lot, is just why. Why was Jesus crucified? I, you know, you say, oh, I know why. Oh, I want to know why that particular choice was made. Why was crucifixion uh, seemed to be the necessary thing for what would happen. There were certainly other ways 
that Jesus could have died. And if you look over the history of the world, there's been all kinds of different ways that people died through the years. And now we come to one of the cruelest times in history when they were nailing people to crosses, hundreds of people, hundreds of people. Sometimes they crucified a whole town. When they came back 40 years after Christ and uh, uh, took Jerusalem, when the Romans took over Jerusalem, it said that they crucified people until there was no more wood. They used every stick of wood that they could find, crucified the people of Jerusalem until there wasn't any more wood, no more wood. And they can't find any more trees and whatever to uh, use. So it was a, really a cruel, hard time. And what we see in the crucifixion was colored by the Jewish rules. Uh, they weren't supposed to hang on a cross overnight till the next day. Uh, but that's because of the Jewish thoughts about that. But what the Romans did a lot of places, you just crucify them and leave them there. They probably lived for a week. And then when they die, they still left them there and the buzzards ate them. A lot of crucifixions, people died, left on the cross, and the buzzards came and ate them. So, and the crows or whatever else. So, <clears throat> you think, man, that's a hard time to come along. And I always wonder, why crucifixion? Well, I've been telling you all along that um, the Romans took away from the Jews capital punishment. And the Romans, when they moved in, said, here's what we do. We collect your money. <laughs> and then we take capital punishment. And we're going to use crucifixion for capital punishment if you're, unless you're a Roman citizen, then we'll cut your head off, make it easy for you. But uh, they're going to use crucifixion. And they said, you can't do that. The Romans will do that in this society. And I've told you that many, many times over the years, told you that this year, that the Jews weren't allowed to do capital punishment. However, however, there's plenty of examples where they did. And, it, and that's what uh, makes me scratch my head. Uh, look at Acts chapter 7. We're going to flip around a little tonight, so try to keep up. Acts chapter 7. Verse number 54, Stephen, he's a kid. He's probably 20 years old, and he's preaching this sermon, masterful sermon. And uh, when he finishes, verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth, or that is the... Yeah. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked steadfastly up to heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing on the right hand of God, and said, Behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, ran upon him with one accord, cast him out of the city, and stoned him. I thought they couldn't do capital punishment. 
That's capital punishment right there. It's about three months after Christ. All right? Christ was there for uh, a month on earth, 40 days after he rose from the dead. He goes up to heaven, and then the church starts. And uh, Stephen's one of these early ones in the church. And they killed him. They didn't have any qualms about that. They hauled him out of the city and threw rocks at him till he was dead. Stoning, <coughs> if they followed any rule, uh, they, they took somebody up on a high place somewhere and pushed him off. So they might take him up on the wall of Jerusalem, shove him off, and they fall down. And who knows whether they're alive or dead when they hit the ground. Then one person would take a great big rock and go up and throw it at their chest, try to kill them that way. And then everybody threw all the stones on That was a normal stoning. And I don't know if they did that with, uh, with him. It says they cast him out of the city and stoned it. That might be how they did it. But I thought they didn't have the power of capital punishment. They just did it right there. Hmm. It's interesting. We think about that. So why didn't the Jews stone him? Why didn't they stone Jesus? There's a question comes into my mind. Uh, we're going to think about it. Look ahead more. Acts chapter 23. Uh, Acts chapter 23. You know that people that stoned Stephen are the same one that killed Jesus. Same people. Now in Acts chapter 23... You look at verse 12. And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together, bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And they were more than 40 which made this conspiracy. And they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great curse that we will eat nothing till we have slain Paul. And so, same people again to kill Jesus and that uh, stone Stephen are going to kill Paul. They're going to use assassins to do it. So, why didn't the Jews just hire some assassin and go kill Jesus? I mean, why was crucifixion the way that it happened? Because they weren't afraid to stone people. They did stone people. And they stoned others. They did take up stones one time against Jesus. He was in the temple. And they grabbed stones. He said he was the son of God. And it says they grabbed stones to, to throw at him. And Jesus slipped through the crowd and disappeared. So the question comes to mind. Then, uh, why did it work out? the way it did, where uh, Jesus was crucified. If they didn't care whether they killed somebody one way or the other, and they, why didn't they send somebody in the night to assassinate him? Why didn't they do those things? And it's a question that we want to consider a little bit tonight. <coughs> and we're going to look uh, to the beginning of the answer is in John chapter 3. Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews and he comes to Jesus one night after dark under the cover of darkness 
and asks some questions to Jesus. And Jesus tells him the most famous thing that night is that you must be born again. And we have taken that phrase down through the ages and used it uh, as something that Jesus said. But another thing that uh, Jesus said to Nicodemus usually gets skipped over. John 3 and verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so uh, Nicodemus says, uh, or Jesus says to Nicodemus, I need to be lifted up. And he says, I'll help you understand it. By the way, Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness. And so he refers back to this case that happened back in the Old Testament with Moses. And he says, what happens to me, I need to be lifted up. And if you want to understand it, go see what Moses did. So that's exactly what we'll do. We'll go back and see what happened in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 21. We're trying to answer the question, uh, why was Jesus crucified? The Jews had other means at their disposal, but uh, he was crucified. And so why that happened? And Jesus himself said, I'm going to be lifted up and to understand it, go back and see what happened with Moses. And so we're in uh, Numbers 21. And guess what? <laughs> we're getting a lot of this lately in our text. Uh, guess what these naughty people did? Here we go. Chapter 21, verse 4. They journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Eden. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. The bread they're complaining about is manna. Right. They got manna from heaven. Every day came down, they collected it, and they said it tastes like uh, very light, nice, uh, uh, what would you call it, pastry. They said, we're sick of this stuff. So they're complaining. Ha ha, there we go again. It keeps coming back to it over and over and over again. How much will we complain? And God put up with that. How much? And it, and our society is absolutely jam-packed full of complaining. It's everywhere. It's everywhere on every hand. And so that you can hardly take in information without sorting through the complaining. And it becomes a part of people's whole concept of, of thought. Everything's a complaint. And so uh, God says, I'm sick of your complaint. Here's what we're going to do this time, because you complain so much. Verse 5, uh, or verse 6, and the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, much the people of Israel 
died. And so there's little snakes on the ground, poisonous. And God said, I got a big hatch. I'm sending them in because you keep complaining and complaining and complaining, and I've had it. So we're going to fix you, help your complaining a little. And these snakes come, and uh, bang, they got you, and you're dead. People are dying like crazy. Verse 7, Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, set it on a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, put it on a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. And so Jesus refers to this. He said, now here's what Moses did, all right? There's these snakes coming in, they're biting people, and they're dying because they just won't stop complaining. All of a sudden, we won't complain anymore. Help, help, help. And uh, God says, make a snake and put it up on a pole up high over the camp. Get it up high enough. And then you tell the people, uh, when you are bitten, you can look at the snake, the brass snake up there. And then you will have a chance uh, to live. So look at the snake on the pole and live. Now Jesus said, I'm going to be lifted up. And I want you to think of it, he says, the same way it was with Moses. All right, same way it was with Moses. So Jesus said, I need to be lifted up. I'm going to be lifted up. And so he said, <clears throat> in other words, in everybody's mind, they knew what lifted up means. He's going to be crucified. Going to be crucified. It seemed to have been a thing of choice. Now, there's a there's a little issue that comes with that. Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Now we know that they conspired to kill Christ as soon as the news got out that Jesus had resurrected Lazarus. Lazarus had been dead four days. Jesus came in, called him out of his tomb. It was a wild thing. And they ran back to Jerusalem. Now it says a lot of people believed. Of course, there's the others. And they run back and they go to the Sanhedrin. They said, he just raised Lazarus from the dead after four days. What are we going to do? If, we keep up, if he keeps this up, Everybody will believe in him. And Caiaphas, the high priest, says, you don't know nothing. We'll kill him. Let's kill him. We'll get rid of him, but we'll just kill him. It's better that one man die than we all die. And the Romans against us. And so right away they planned to kill him. And they had all kinds of meetings trying to figure out how to do it. Now, Matthew 26 is another one of these meetings in verse number 3. Matthew 26, verse number 3. Assembled together the chief priests and the scribes, the elders of the people, unto the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. And they consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety 
and kill him. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. And so they wanted him dead. They're trying to figure out a way to do it. Maybe we could send an assassin and just get him dead. And we'll see what happens. And they said, well, that's not, that may not be a good way to do it because it is Passover and there are Jews from all over the world now in Jerusalem. It's a high holiday. And uh, if we kill that Jesus, if we kill him, uh, there's going to be an uproar. The common people love him. And I think Jesus forced their hand to make them crucify him. I think he forced their hand because he said, I'm going to be lifted up, I'm going to be crucified. And he said, uh, I need to make sure that happens because these guys will try anything to kill me. And so he did something, I think, that forced their hand. He rode into town on a donkey. Huge, huge crowd around him coming through the gates of Jerusalem off the Mount of Olives, all shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, Hosanna to the Son of David, uh, Hosanna in the highest, shouting and shouting as he comes into town. And so they say, well, look, this, this week is Passover. Look at that crowd. They love him. And if we find some way to get him, and kill him, who knows, it could be a lot of trouble. So we're not going to kill him now, this week. We're going to have to do it later because it's Passover. And there's going to be a lot of trouble if we kill him this week. And uh, so <clears throat> some people say, and this is not a bad thing to say, I'm just saying that some people say this a lot. They say that whatever happened, whatever Jesus did, his purpose was to fulfill scripture or prophecy, actually. So there were prophecies about Jesus. And when he wrote into Jerusalem, uh, I'll turn over to Zechariah. Uh, you can if you like. Zechariah 9, 9. And we have this, it's kind of an amazing prophecy. Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass, upon a colt, the foal of an ass. It's like a correction. He's riding on an ass. Make, you know, make sure you understand. It's a colt. It's not a full-grown one. And when they went to get that colt, there was two there, the Bible tells us, and they took them both. But Jesus rode the one that had never been ridden. Uh, anybody ever rode a horse that had never been ridden? <laughs> yeah. I know better than that. See, I, I hardly want to ride the ones that have been ridden, okay? Jesus got on a colt that had never been ridden, and, and rode it into town. And they said, well, that's exactly what he said about him. He was going to ride a colt. And that he was lowly. 
And when you see him riding in a, in that cheering crowd, you say to yourself, man, that's hard to think that he hasn't created an atmosphere. He has created an atmosphere. So that they think we got to kill him, but we can't kill him now. He's way too popular. Why did they stone Stephen? Because nobody knew who Stephen was. If, if they stoned Stephen, he's a 20-year-old kid. He happens to be brilliant, smarter than the whole Sanhedrin, but he's a 20-year-old kid. If we stone him, there's nobody going to say anything. Who's ever heard of him? We don't care. But a lot of people heard of Jesus, and, and it's Passover week, and we can't make trouble because we'll get in trouble if we make trouble. So nothing. And it would have been that way until Judas came along. Judas changed it. Judas changed it. All right? He came along. So it says that they were uh, riding on a colt and it says the reason he did that was to fulfill the scripture, Matthew 21. If you look at it. Verse 1, when they drew nigh to Jerusalem or come to Bethpage and to the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying, Go into the village over against you. Straightway you shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them, bring them unto me. If any man say aught unto you, you shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh unto thee meek, sitting on an ass, a cold, a foal of an ass. So, say, well, he wrote into Jerusalem to fulfill scripture. True. A lot of things happen to fulfill scripture, but that's not the only purpose of it. Jesus says, I thirst. Say, well, that was fulfilling scripture. It was. It was prophesied that he would thirst. But that's not all. He just wasn't saying, well, let's see, I got one more to fulfill. I thirst. He's thirsty. All right? He needs to drink. And so it's not just the fulfilling of Scripture. So when we say Jesus forced their hand, I think he made them not use some other means to crucify him, uh, to get rid of him. All right? And so they saw... Finally, uh, a chance, and their chance was, uh, we'll get the Romans to kill him, and that'll help us. When we get the Romans to kill him, we blame Pilate. And then we can say, we didn't do it. Rome killed him. And so it's very, it's a lot of political maneuvering. But we've got to go back, because we want to figure out this snake on the pole. Uh, the snake on the pole. If you recall back in Genesis chapter 3 uh, was a story about a snake. <laughs> the first snake in the Bible, of course, is Satan. Genesis chapter 3, after they sinned, verse 14, Lord God said to the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field. On thy belly shalt thou go, thus shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And so 
It starts in the book of Genesis. Uh, a serpent is cursed. A serpent is cursed. First thing in the book of Genesis, the serpent is cursed. Now, we come to uh, Moses and the brass snake high up on the pole. And so he says, look at that snake. Well, what, he said, who wants to look at a snake? Anybody love snakes? All the ladies right away, mm, nobody likes snakes, of course. It's, it's kind of bred into you, all right? <laughs> and, and, uh, I don't care for them either, okay? I don't hate them, but I don't know. Anyway, there's a, so these poisonous snakes are coming in and biting, and people are dying like crazy. And he says, you can stop this, but you've got to look at that snake. And so when they look at the snake, what did that snake do for him? That snake didn't do nothing for him. Just a snake on a pole. The brass snake on a pole. Snake didn't do nothing. You understand that when they looked up there, all right, who cured the snake bite? God did. So God, here's your instruction. You got a snake bite, you're gonna die fast, painfully fast. But look up there and look at that snake, believing that when you look at the symbol of death, the cursed snake up there, when you look at the symbol of death, God will cure your snake bite and you'll live. And that's what they're required to believe. So the snake up there is a symbol of death. The snake is cursed, symbol of death. So you think, well, why didn't the snake have any value? No, and as a matter of fact, it's got a little more history than you think. Um, 2 Kings 18, kind of a fascinating story here. 2 Kings chapter number 18 2 Kings chapter number 18. And there comes to the throne of Israel uh, one of the descendants of David named Hezekiah. And he's a really good king. <clears throat> Verse 2. 25 years old was he when he began to reign. He reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, uh, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David did. He removed the high places, break the images, cut down the groves, and break in pieces the brazen servant that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel burned incense to it, and he called it uh, Neshushtan. Nehushtan, all right? And so that snake had been kept for all those years, and they started thinking, well, that snake is wonderful. You know, everybody lived because of that snake, so we're going to burn a little incense and worship that snake. 
Hezekiah said, no, you're not. I'll smash that thing in a million pieces. And he took the brass snake that Moses made and ground it in the powder and it was gone. He said, that snake is nothing. You can't be worshiping that snake. You've got to get it right in your head. So you're going to look at death, symbol of death, symbol of a curse, up on that cross. You're going to look at that. And so we come to the crucifixion. And we want to know why Jesus had to be crucified. Why he had to go through that. And if you think about crucifixion, there was nothing ever invented by men that took any longer for you to die than crucifixion. I mean, when they cut your head off, of course, you, the Romans did that uh, to Paul, cut his head off, he'd gone that next second. They used to hang people out west. Didn't take long, right? And you get the bottom of the rope, you're dead. It's over, right? And most forms of that were like that. But crucifixion, you'd be there for days. And so you're looking at dying and, and you're looking and looking and looking and looking and looking and looking. And I think that that's why Jesus was going to be crucified. He said, I want you to think back about Moses and that serpent on the pole. And you look there, you look up, and you live as God gives you, all right, takes away the curse of the snake biting you. And it's a fiery snake, so you die painfully and fast. And he says, you look at that, and you'll live. And now he's saying, I want you to look at Jesus. We want to look at him on that cross. And I think that the purpose of the crucifixion and the connection of the, to Moses and the serpent in the wilderness that Jesus made is so that you will take a good, long look at Jesus on the cross. And I think that is the intention of the whole thing. Look and live. Look and live. Look at him. Well, how long is he there? Well, they put him there at 9 o'clock in the morning. And you can look. And he said two or three things between 9 and noon. And then the sky went black. And he hung there, and before he's done, he said seven things. It's been six hours. He's been dying on a cross. And they want you to look at it and look and look and get a good long look at it. And so you understand something. Remember I told you a couple weeks ago that uh, cursed was anyone that hung on a tree. The Jewish 
law was if you kill somebody and you're going to hang him up on a tree to tell people as a warning, as a deterrent to crime, you can do that. You can hang him on the tree, but don't leave him overnight. Get him down off of there, because cursed is anybody that hangs on a tree. So we close up the thought with Galatians. Galatians, we have it explained to us finally. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Galatians chapter 3. Verse number 11. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, for it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. So we are supposed to have faith. The law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And so he says, You look up there and get a good look at Christ. He is cursed there. He's hanging on a tree. He's cursed. And just the thought of crucifixion, if you think about it, uh, like they said, you're going to hang him up for everybody to see. To be crucified was to be suspended. You're not on the ground. And you're not up in heaven. And you're suspended in between the earth and heaven. The earth doesn't want you, considers you a curse. Heaven doesn't want you. Is your curse. And so he's suspended there. Earth won't take him. He's been forsaken by men. Heaven won't have him. He's forsaken by God. So Jesus is crucified. So we'll take a good, long, thoughtful look and see. He said seven things from the cross. What do they mean? What does it mean to us? What the things that he said? Uh, he suffered. We talked about all of those things. Not all of them, but a lot of those things. Now he's a curse. You're going to look and live. You're going to look at him. And the more you see, and the longer you look, uh, the more you'll understand, and the more it will be. And so um, the other day we sang a song in church. And some people can really look and get it. Some people really get it, all right? Some people, it says they, uh, they pass by and take a glance and, huh, I wonder what that's all about, and they go on. But there are people who really get it. And Sunday, uh, I don't know which one, last Sunday, Sunday before, we sang a hymn. And some people really get it. And so turn in your hymn books to page 104. This is the result of looking for a long time at the cross. And I always think when we sing this song or 
certain other ones, I think, well, that's a lot better than a sermon. That's way better than a sermon. This is a masterpiece of Charles Wesley looking at the cross and running through his mind the questions that he has about it. And the first question is, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me, who causes pain for me, who him to death pursued? He said, I was a sinner. Why is he dying for me? The first question I have, and can it be? Is it possible he's dying for me? How do I think about it? Amazing love. How can it be? that thou my God should die for me. So his first question as he looks long hard at the cross is I can't believe he's dying for me. That ought to be every one of our thoughts as we look at that. It goes on to verse two. Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Now we're looking at the cross and saying this is the son of God. He's immortal. He was came, was never born. He always existed. And he always will exist. And so how in the world is he on that cross dying? Can you figure it out? Look up there. And that's the immortal, eternal son of God dying on a cross. And he says, it's a mystery. How can the immortal die? Who can explore his strange design? What's he got in his head that he's dying? In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. It's not just us looking at the cross. Angels looked at the cross and said, what is he doing? What is it? What do we do about it? And it's Peter over there that tells us in 1 Peter 1, he's the one that tells us the angels are trying to figure it out. 1 Peter 1, verse 10, I'll read it for you. Of which salvation the prophets inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied the grace that should come to you. Prophets said, well, I don't know what's coming, but something's coming Searching water, what manner the time of the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. And they kept being told in their ear, the prophets, he's going to suffer. And they said, I don't get it. I don't understand it. Uh, verse 12, and unto whom it was revealed, not to themselves, but unto us, they did minister to things which is now reported unto you by them that preached the gospel to you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Angels are trying to figure out. They're looking at that cross and trying to figure out what's going on. He's the immortal son of God. How come he's dying? All right. And he says here, <coughs> Angels, in vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. Tis mercy all. Let earth adore. Let angel minds inquire no more. It's mercy. It's a huge, huge pouring out of mercy on the cross. Verse 3, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. He's dying for the human race on the cross. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. <laughs> that's, that's it. 
you're looking at the cross, and he's looking there, and he says, man, he says, it's just can't believe he left heaven. And we were ivory palaces in heaven where everything was perfect. And he came down here to earth and got abused and misused and mistreated, but he was willing to do it. And he's bleeding now on that cross, and I'm standing there looking at him, and his mercy all. Tell the angels his mercy. Tell yourself, because suddenly you discovered he died for you. And mercy was for you. That's a good look at the cross. Verse 4, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. I was under a curse, I was cursed. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, or God sent a little light into my dark prison. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. When I thought about Jesus hanging on the cross, and I saw it there, I realized that from that gaze and that look, as I understand it, he came to me and he set me free of the things that hindered me and the things in my life that was a curse over me. He set me free. And I said, I got up and I followed him <laughs> from that cross to the tomb and then on up to heaven. You want to follow him, follow him, follow him. You got the right idea. You're looking at the Savior on the cross. In the last verse, no condemnation now I dread. When Jesus you look at him hanging on the cross. He's got your sins. And so he says, I got your sins. I'm going to give you a pardon. I'm going to forgive your sins. All right? I forgive your sins. And you're told I can forgive your sins. So is, is there some proof? Yeah, there is. He said on the cross where he was dying, he'd forgive us. And then we went to the empty tomb. And there you get handed to you. Here. Here it is. This is proof now. Your sins are forgiven. He rose from the dead. It wasn't a promise of a dying man. Couldn't do anything about it. It was a promise of a man who lives and is able to do something about it. So because of that, no condemnation, no, I dread. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. Jesus forgives me. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, clothed in righteousness divine, bold, I approach the eternal throne, claim the crown through Christ my name. You want to understand the cross, you're looking at it and what Jesus purchased for you, and you recognize if he says I'm forgiven, that's all I need. That's all I need. And I can boldly go up to God and say, let me in. This is my home. My home is heaven. Let me in. How come you're so bold? Because Jesus gave that to me. And I saw it on the cross. That's pretty good thinking about the cross. He's... he's, he's He's got more. He's got more. Turn over to page 122. Same author, page 122. Like I said, some people really got their brains in gear correctly. They got it figured out. 
Same author, Charles Wesley, looking at the cross. Same way, taking that long look at the cross, thinking about what it is. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. You feel guilty. We all feel guilty. Anybody has never felt guilty? I asked the kids that. <laughs> the little kids up in the class on Saturday when we had the party. I said, has anybody ever here felt guilty? And they all... <laughs> I didn't ask them if anybody did anything bad. I said, has anybody ever felt guilty? <laughs> Every head. That's it. Kind of what it is, a human condition. He's saying here, get up. Shake off that guilt. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands. My name is written on his hand. He says, look at the cross. I don't have to feel guilty anymore. I have a surety or a guarantee. There's been a promise made that the price is paid. And so I, he paid the price on the cross, and uh, the risen Savior, the promise is kept. All right? So he says, before the throne my surety stands. Or Jesus is up there, and he says, sure enough, my name is written on his hand. That's an amazing statement. God's the one that made it. He said, I'm going to write the names of the people who believe in me on his hand. You want to know if that's literal? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but I'd say yes. Written in blood. Yes. Written in blood on his hands. And uh, I think his hands were left that way. Because we know that after the resurrection, he still had the wounds. I think his hands were ever left that way so that we would say, were you, you really think about me? Uh, was my name written on your hand? See for yourself. There's a hole. Still there. There's a hole still there. Yes, yes. My name is written on his hand. Verse 2, he ever lives above for me to intercede. And so he rose from the dead, went to heaven, and he's up there interceding. That means he's praying for me. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for all our race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Um, he said, uh, Jesus prays for us, and his blood in particular was sprinkled on the throne of grace. Now that's an Old Testament reference. In the Old Testament, when a priest went in on the Day of Atonement into the Holy of Holies, only one day a year, he went in there, and in front of him is the Ark of the Covenant. And he sprinkled blood on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of it. All right, so he sprinkled blood. Now the Ark of the Covenant was a box, and there was a cover on the box, and the cover had two golden angels facing each other. And the cover on the box was called the mercy seat. 
Those gods that I'll sit on top of the box. My presence will be on top of the box. And so where I sit becomes a mercy seat. And he says, my, uh, his, his blood atoned for all, right, and th- sprinkled now the throne of grace. And so the high priest sprinkled blood to pay for sin. Jesus went up to heaven, sprinkled blood for paying for sin. Much, it's a final thing now, on the throne of grace. Uh, or there was the mercy seat on top of the box. Now he did it up in heaven. And so he becomes the high priest over every priest. Verse 3, five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly, it should say, plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry, nor let that ransom sinner die. He went to heaven and God said, he said, I'm here. I finished the work you gave me to do. And he says, well, uh, is it finished? He said, yeah, it's finished. Here's five bleeding wounds, and I'm asking forgiveness for everybody that asked me. I want to ask for that. And uh, he said, yeah, all right, we'll, we will do it. We agree. So God agreed. The Father hears him pray. His dear anointed one, he cannot turn away the presence of his son. All right, he couldn't say no to Jesus. Jesus said, I'm here to ask for forgiveness for every human that asked me. God said, I agree, we will do that. The spirit answers to the blood and tells me I am born of God. All right, and so when the blood is presented in heaven, the Holy Spirit he says, answers that. So when we say, dear Lord, forgive me, how do we know we're forgiven? Well, we believe it by faith, yeah, but the Holy Spirit comes down and whispers in your ear and says, it's real, it's real, it's true. It's inside of you now. Do you hear my voice? I'm speaking to you. I'm trying to help you to understand this is real. And the Spirit answers to the blood and tells me I am born of God. So do I know that I'm forgiven, that I'm made new, that I'm born again? Yeah, you bet I know. I sure do. I sure do. Because the Spirit answers. As Jesus presents the blood to the Father, he sends the Spirit down. He says, tell them. Get inside of them. Tell them that it's real. That's a wonderful thing. Verse 5, my God is reconciled. His parting voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh and father, have a father cry. There he is. And he's impressed about this, that we went to the cross and we looked at the cross. And we saw all that Jesus purchased for us. And we think we ought to be shaking our heads and saying, oh, wow, did we mess up. He said, but if you really get it, you get this confidence. I feel good. (laughs) I feel good. It's good. And I have confidence I can walk into the throne room of God and say, I'm here. I need your help. Will you help me? And the answer will always be yes. Yes, I will. Father, Abba, Father, cry. Or Father, my Father, 
I'm calling on you. He says, I can go in there and do that all the time. And so a good long look at the cross should fill you with confidence that you have the right to walk into God's throne room and say, I'm here. I need some help. Will you help me? And the answer is going to be, you betcha. You betcha. All right? As long as you're not complaining. I got a snake if you're complaining. I'm trying to get that stuck in everybody's head because it's stuck in mine. How much of your conversation is complaining? Think about it. But look at that cross and you're going to look at it for a long time for six hours and they're going to abuse him and spit on him and do every vile thing to him and he never said one word of complaint. Not one word. Think about that. That'd be a good thing to think about all night. Friday night, we come to the communion table as we partake together around the table as the Lord told us to. And then we shift that gear into high gear and go the other way. He is risen indeed. Thank you.